Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today we are talking to Chris Whitaker. Chris is a former guest of the show. You might recognize his name from episode 618. We had him on to talk about the epic life of an adventure guide. Well, he has kind of gotten out of that world. Not really, though, because he's still doing awesome guided trips up Kilimanjaro uh, through his company, Global Shenanigans. All the which sounds really fun. Uh, all that's linked in the show notes. You can find them at global-shenanigans.com. Uh, but anyway, we talked last time. It was March 2020, like a week before the pandemic really kicked off. And we had talked because I record these a couple of months in advance, a few months before that. And it was, uh, yeah, it wasn't really on our radar yet. But then all of a sudden, the pandemic hit. I know a ton changed in Chris's life from, uh, you know, that that job was gone. You know, basically just no one was traveling. No one was doing anything. No one was definitely going on an adventure, a guided adventure trip. So uh, Chris put together a plan and it took a while to achieve, but he and a friend decided that they wanted to do the Inside Passage, which is the 1,200-mile coast, basically, of British Columbia from Seattle, Washington to Skagway, Alaska, and it is stunning. It is mountains and glaciers and whales and orcas and, uh, gosh, grizzly bears and forests and, and just beautiful islands. It's an unbelievable paddle. I've always wanted to do it. I hope I do one day. But he's going to tell us about the 72-day adventure that he and his friend went on to to do this uh, crazy achievement. So I was very excited to hear about this. He has some awesome stories and I can't wait to jump in. So I tell you what, let's go ahead and do that. Here we go. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. We have an alumni on the show who was on literally right as the pandemic was hitting the U.S. It had already been in some other places, but March of 2020... We talked to Chris Whitaker about basically the lifestyle of being a seasonal guide, jumping from season to season and, and hearing some of those stories and how he's done it and how he makes it work. And today we're going to talk to Chris, as you have heard in the intro, uh, about kayaking the inside passage. Chris, welcome back to Adventure Sports Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me back on, Mason. Um yeah, it was a lot of fun last time, and yeah, the adventures have continued since, and uh, I think they've really just got bigger and better. <laughs> I, I actually don't know. You could be anywhere in the world right now, so where are you coming from, and where, where is home for you at this point? Right now, I'm in Cornwall in the UK. Uh, I've continued working seasonally, continued moving around the place, um, but with COVID, it meant going back to the UK and finding guiding work down there. And uh, Cornwall, uh, for those that don't know, it's the very southwestern tip of the UK. It's a really popular place for summer holidays. People come down here. Uh, there's nice beaches, there's surf, and then obviously kayaking as well. So it's it's become a, a bit of a base during COVID years. This is where my parents are. So I was able to stay there and kind of reset as the pandemic washed over. Um, but since... Uh, since last winter, I was back on the road. I got back to Canada for the winter season. 
I then did the inside passage trip over the summer and I actually just got back from leading two trips in Tanzania last month. So I'm kind of between things right now, uh, just come back to change over gear and then I'll be back out again for the winter season in two weeks. Isn't there like a perimeter southwest coast path or something around there? Maybe not. Uh, it's a it's a it's a really long hiking trail in the UK. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the the Southwest Trail it goes uh, well all through Cornwall into Devon. Um, starts a bit further up as well. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, uh, a long a long trail. A lot of people try and do it over either their whole lives or do it over a summer. And yeah, just walk walk the whole way. The company I work for, Athletic Brewing, has we've done some work there. Never had the chance to do it, but uh, looks amazing. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's funny that that's something you're aware of. Not many people would know about that unless they're actually from around here. Um, but yeah, the whole coast around here is beautiful. Really nice uh, coastal paths, nice sandy beaches. And yeah, it's just uh, some lovely British uh, countryside. Tell us a little bit about the last two years. I know you said COVID was really probably threw a wrench in your plans like it did most people in the sense of like adventure but catch us up on what has been going on i know we're going to talk about the inside passage trip but what has developed in your life and what what has either changed about it or, or what have you done because you said adventures are getting bigger and better uh, i i used the time to work on a project that i've had in the pipeline for quite a while i had always been hoping to one day launch my own guiding company and run my own expeditions in a few locations and i actually went public with this idea in I think mid or early March about wanting to take groups to Kilimanjaro and then the pandemic hit and it was very serious for a long time so um, I kind of continued working on that but was amazed by the uptake and the interest that that came with it I basically just put it on Facebook to my friends and wanted to take a small group of people that knew me that would trust me and kind of do like a bit of a demo run and Within two weeks, the first group of 10 was fully booked and I was on to making a second group. And unfortunately, because of COVID, we had to postpone twice. So the numbers changed a few times uh, throughout that. But we actually were finally able to do that trip um, in September and October this year. So I just got back from doing that, taking some of the guys that have been booked with me for two years um, on the on an expedition up Mount Kilimanjaro and then on a safari afterwards and which was incredible yeah so it's something i've wanted to do for a while um we're meant to go last year as well couldn't do that so instead um i got a second location which was a kayak trip to sicily so i managed to do my first group trips under my own name last year and uh yeah it's kind of just been an opportunity to work on that try and build the audience try and build the uh, excitement and take people on these different adventures around the world Oh man, that's that's what it's about getting people out there to to do this stuff. So so that's pretty cool. You just you shouted it out to your friends and it and it you filled up one trip right away. Is that is that global shenanigans? That's right. Yeah. So that's global shenanigans is the name <laughs> All of right, the so what's, adventure uh, tours. Tell, I know we were talking about it, and I know you were doing this the last time. You at least had this handle in this website. What? Tell us the vibe. Like like global shenanigans is just it makes me think it's pretty fun group of people <laughs> you know what i mean because yeah, a lot I, of guide trips can feel really i don't know prestigious and, and kind of uppity or or really put together i don't know that gives me a vibe that it's it's a fun goofy I, you tell me you tell me no that, that sounds about right yeah it's just a, a group of people that want to have a good time want to go on a big adventure uh the people that come they've maybe done a bit of traveling themselves maybe not it doesn't really matter they just want to go have some crazy trip and 
don't really know where to start in terms of organizing it, or they may not have their own friend group to do these kind of things. So um, the first group I took was a lot of my good friends. Some of them actually went to primary school with, um, but then the second group was more of a kind of realistic group people. Uh, some of them I do know um, and others I do not uh, friends of friends and stuff. So a lot of kind of single travelers, solo travelers that wanted to come together and, and have a really fun, not so serious trip, do a big adventure. Um, but yeah, in the most fun, laid back, kind of easygoing way. And uh, I, I kind of organized the whole thing, arrange the logistics, do everything, just try and make it easy for people Just tell them what they need to bring and I'll meet them at the airport and then we're good to go. And how did it go? How did they go, I guess? It went great. Yeah, it couldn't have gone better if I planned it um, to, to go any any smoother. Yeah, the weather was great. Everyone had a, an awesome time. Some of the people in the group had never been out of Western Europe before. So to take them to Africa and really experience a new culture, you know, new people, new language. Uh, yeah, that's really getting involved in something like that. And, you know, the reviews I've heard from them and the feedback has been exceptional. So, yeah, really excited to continue with that uh head back again next year and add new locations year on year as we go well, like most guides they are you know balancing taking people on trips and also pursuing their own interests in adventure and a, a lot of people use their interests to go do new trips and then in the hopes or kind of with the in mind that it's going to eventually be an itinerary they can take people on is that what you're doing with things like the inside passage? Yeah, it's uh, it's an idea. The entire passage, uh, I don't, well, actually, I thought about this a lot during. I'm not sure it'd be possible for the whole thing, but there's certainly sections that I would love to take people, um, particularly on the north end of Vancouver Island, where the killer whales come during the salmon runs in the, in the peak summer season. I think taking a group there would be uh, incredible, doing a, multi-day into island kayaking trip there trying to show people killer whales humpback whales so yeah it definitely these these itineraries are definitely inspired by the stuff i'm doing myself um kilimanjaro came the same way i'd actually been out to tanzania on a expedition for another company before and then it kind of led into the idea of coming back with my own group so yeah it's certainly a great way of doing it and i i really feel for my trips I want to have been to all these places before I then bring groups. Cause I feel like for me to convince you to go, I have to know for sure. It's uh it is what I'm saying. It is right. Right. You gotta, you gotta know. And, you, and it helps to know a few of the details of, of things to look out for people to connect with. So that's awesome. Well, well take us through kind of why the inside passage, what made you want to do this of all the things you could do. I'm always curious, how does an adventure, especially with something so big choose an adventure what stuck out to you about this trip and why did you end up doing it so the the inside passage uh for those that don't know is it's a route in the pacific it technically starts in seattle and goes all the way to skagway in alaska um but i was working on vancouver island at the time and that's part of where the route goes by so it goes on the inside of all the islands um trying to find some shelter from the um the outside from the from the bigger conditions and I was working on Vancouver Island and met two girls at a pub who were doing the same trip. They were going north. This was in 2017. And that was the first time I'd come across anyone kayaking to Alaska. I'd only been in Canada for a few weeks at the time. 
And it just sounded crazy. It just seemed so big and so far. But throughout the season, it just kept playing on my mind. I kept thinking about it and I was following their journey as well on Instagram. And the more time that went by, the more I started to think this is something I might actually be able to do. Like it's, uh, it might be within the, the realm of possibilities of, of a thing I could accomplish. And I think the thought just persisted over the summer and I started to get quite serious about the idea. And it kind of grew from there. So it never really, never really struck me about why. I think just as soon as I heard it, it just sounded like something that appealed to me. Um, it just seemed like a crazy adventure. You know, you could go and explore, could kayak, kind of test my own skills, see wildlife, see new places. Like, it's all the things I'd like to do. So I never really considered the why until the trip began and people started asking me. It was more of a the how kind of slowly developed. Like, how could I actually do this? And uh, things got really serious when I, I spoke to my friend Nuka, who was a fellow guide at the time. Um, he was He's done a pretty big trip before, so... You know, I, I approached him about it. I figured, you know, if anyone was going to, you know, join me on this journey, you know, he's, I get on with him. We're good friends. We work well together. And I know he could do it. And he's quite likely to say yes. And yeah, fortunately, he agreed. And as soon as he was in, you know, we had our first trip meeting. And I knew, you know, this is seriously going to happen. You know, he brought organization to the crazy idea and helps it get some momentum. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. What were some of the early decisions, like time of year? How long is this going to take? Where are we going to camp? Getting a boat? Not sure if you had a vessel or not. What was some of that, those initial hurdles to get over? And uh, maybe some of the, the things you were the most unsure about. When to do it was a big one. Um, it obviously changed as well, because originally we were going to go in May 2020. And with COVID, we had to postpone our trip twice. And in that time, the my my partner, I went with Nuka. Um, he, his girlfriend became his fiance and they had a child together. And there was now other commitments in our lives that, you know, it's not all about the, the kayak trip anymore. So um, in terms of how long it was going to take, it was, you know, I kind of put that on to Nuka and his partner, Andrea, to the side. You know, all I all I wanted was to do this trip. And the time frame was kind of more on their side, like how long can we go away for that would be OK? And we kind of settled on breaking it up into two halves that around the, the middle of the trip, uh, Nukrachi, funnily enough, he went and had to attend a, a wedding in Ontario. So in the middle of the trip, uh, I, I camped out with the boats and he went to the wedding for a week, got to see Andrea, got to see his son. What did you do for a week? <laughs> Not much, man. Not much. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, yeah, I read a, read a lot of my book, some Netflix, just just waited, just looked at the clock. <laughs> no, it was all right. It was all right to have a good rest after, you know, so... Uh, progressing so much it was nice to have a long rest but it was, it was maybe a little too long but it was it was part of the deal I knew uh, this was necessary in order to get Nuka on the trip so yeah the the time frame that was a big thing um, that affected how long we were going to be and then another big challenge really was the cost of the whole thing and the equipment itself so we uh, in our early meeting we were discussing you know are we going to 
try and make a film? Are we going to make a video of this or that? And we we realized that, especially now, like with Netflix, there's so many really, really well-made adventure movies and documentaries with a professional crew. They do everything and there's no way we can compete to that kind of standard. But what we can do is make a really kind of raw, uncut, uncensored kind of real version of what these trips are like by filming it ourselves, be a bit amateurish, a bit less serious, and make a YouTube series and show people what it actually looks like the day in, the day out behind the scenes. So when we decided on that, we could then use that idea to approach some sponsors and hopefully they could then provide some gear to us and that would bring our costs massively down. So we were really lucky for the, the people that did jump on board and um, really helped us out a lot. Um, it meant the only thing that we actually had to really buy ourselves was the food and then the boats. Did, did you feel that you had to have a partner? Was it something you ever considered potentially doing by yourself? I did consider it. The The first summer when I, when I got the idea was quite a few months of weighing that idea up, whether it's something I could do myself, whether I had the skills and ability to achieve that. And, and then really was, do I want to do it by myself? Because it really kind of, it removes the fun out of it. So I was, I was trying to focus on what the worst days would look like, which could be, you know, five, six, seven days of cold and rain and wet and you're cooking dinner and you're also doing the washing up and you're also moving all the equipment by yourself. And I realized if you have someone with you, you can laugh about those situations. You can turn it into a joke. You can make it fun and you can keep going. But if you're by yourself, you, it's just kind of a bit sad and depressing to be in those conditions. It seemed like it was more of a chore. Um, so that kind of whole mentality is why the name For Fun's Sake came up as well. It kind of brought the whole thing back that that is the reason we're doing this trip. Like it's meant to be fun. We're going to have a good time. You know, we're going to, you know, we'll have some drinks as we go. We'll eat good food when we when we can. We're not going to just eat cans of beans every day. Like we're going to enjoy it the best we can. So yeah, having someone come on board was a, a huge part of that. And yeah, wouldn't have wouldn't have ever found a better partner than going with Nuka. For fun's sake, did that live up to its name or was it mostly what did we get ourselves into? <laughs> no, it was really fun. Yeah, even the lowest days, you know, I, I would still say were fun and enjoyable when when shit hit the fan, we were having a good time. We we laughed things off pretty quickly. There was a moment where it had been about a week of of cold and we're in Alaska so the, the the wind is like biting it's really cold coming off the glaciers and it was just damp and wet there was no way of warming up it was actually the only time in the whole trip that I wore all of my clothes at once just had everything on and that morning our cooker broke and then we got our spare cooker and that wasn't working either and we were two days away from Juno, and we have no way of warming up any water to make a coffee we have no way of getting a hot meal and for breakfast we just had to eat our cereal bars for lunch we just had our tuna wraps and then for dinner we just had another tuna wrap and we did that luckily only two days in a row because we're two days from Juno. but that was if i look back that probably was the lowest moment but still as soon as the cooker broke we were just laughing at it we just shrugged it off it is what it is luckily we're both that those kind of people we just have to deal with it and get on with it and yeah things were not going our way in that moment but it is what it is and yeah we we still found a way to have a good time throughout that so that that 
route, the inside passage, it's very remote. There are, funny enough, cruise ships of people, you know, seeing the icebergs, seeing the the fjords and, and whatnot. How remote did it feel? Explain, like, the, the sense of wilderness in this area uh, compared to maybe other parts of the world you've been to. We certainly felt isolated. It's a very strange feeling because you are going multiple days without speaking to another person other than, you know, each other. And, but then you're, you're there at night and then a floating city that is a Disney cruise ship comes around the corner and you can see them playing like a Disney movie on the big screen. And you feel, it almost makes you feel even more remote because you're just so far away from that experience. Like you are having a totally different you're like in a different reality doing the same journey. It's it's really strange because um, it was basically only when we got into the towns that we would speak to people because boats would go past, but they could be, you know, a, a kilometer or two kilometers away. Um, not that often was a boat close enough that they would actually say hi. Um, you get a couple of people waving now and then. Every few days, a boat might wave because they can see you kayaking and they're considering how far away you are from anything. And they're kind of processing what these guys must be doing. So they're, they're pretty keen to give you a wave and I guess make sure you don't need <laughs> rescuing probably. Yeah. But, but yeah, you definitely feel uh, isolated out there, which is the whole appeal. I think you really, you do it because you want to get away and be immersed in, in nature and in the rhythms of the, the natural cycles, I guess, you know, following the tide, following the, the sun. That's just how you start to live and really get into that kind of routine. Tell us about, yeah, just, just the scenery. It's, it's, it's just an amazing meeting of land and sea. Enormous snow-capped mountains, cliffs and, and rocks and gigantic trees in the ocean. Tell us about days that you spent maybe in awe of what you were seeing. One of the standout moments for me, which was both in terms of the natural beauty of the landscape and a wildlife encounter we happened to have at this this place was at the north end of Princess Royal Island, which is in BC. And the top of this island, it's really, really steep cliffs with waterfalls coming off of them. So we're basically camping in a bay, a horseshoe kind of bay. There's a waterfall on the left side and on the right side. These jagged, steep cliffs, water running down. And then there's a very small plateau, just big enough to camp on. And then the beach goes out and then it drops down once again. So essentially where the beach touches the water, it's just another cliff straight down. And we're just nestled in there. Really amazing campsite. And because of the waterfall, it creates a mist as well. So there's like a really eerie kind of fog right at the top of the, the mountain range. And the next morning, Nuka's making the coffee. I'm down the other end of the beach for some reason and I'm walking back and I just hear a whoosh, which is the sound of a humpback whale when they blow it. It's like a shotgun blast going off. It's so loud and particularly because of the shape of this bay, it just echoes off of the, the mountain behind me. And because the water's so deep, this whale's only about 10 or 15 meters away from me. Right there. So I go back to the camp and I say to Nuka, like, you know, did you see that whale? That was amazing. He's like, no, what whale? And I start to explain what happened. Like, you know, it's just over there. How did you miss it? And as I'm talking to him, over his shoulder, I see three humpback whales all surface at the same time, vertical, with their mouths open. And they're coming right out of the water. 
And I just look at him in the eyes and like, turn around, turn around, turn around. And he spins around and he sees it as well. And they then drop back down. We both grab our cameras and rush over to the water. And what was happening, I only know because I've heard about this behavior before. I've never actually seen it with my own eyes. They were doing something called bubble net feeding. And when we got to the water's edge, we could actually see it happening. So essentially one whale, it dives down deep and it slowly releases air bubbles in a circle and it makes a net like a lasso kind of shape. And as it does that, the, the fish or the krill or, plant or whatever they're eating kind of gets balled together. And then one of the whales will give a call and all of them at the same time will then surface with their mouths open and they'll all try and grab that bait ball all in the center. So when we rush to the water's edge of our cameras, we're waiting there and about 10 meters away, again, so close, we can see this bubble net being formed. We can see this uh, like a bloop, 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 like on the surface. We see it happening and we point our cameras that way. And then, yeah, all at the same time, they just rush out of the water. And, you know, we're, we're both lost for words, like mouths open, completely awestruck at, at what's happening in such a incredible landscape all around us i can't imagine that moment of just saying everything up to this point has been totally worth it for that for just that 100 percent. yeah that's uh you know I'd, I'd worked in canada for two summer seasons as uh you know people come on those trips to see whales and see killer whales and i'd never seen bubble net feeding before obviously it does happen around there um and if you're lucky on a whale watching boat you might get to see it uh but to see it there is like as, as if they came to us i know they didn't but it kind of felt that way that we were being you know rewarded or treated for our our hard work and our effort of getting to that point it's like this is nature on your doorstep a bbc documentary level stuff going on right in front of you things that that people wait years to see um that is awesome that is really cool uh speaking of wildlife uh, yeah i'd love to hear other uh potential Gosh, wildlife encounters, because we have had someone on the show, a few people on the show before talk about the Inside Passage. Um, it's been a few years, though, so there's been plenty of time to, to, to bring it up again and to hear a new perspective. And one of the things that has been mentioned a lot is, is one, surprising difficulty finding camping, at least for the people I've talked to, and two, the amount of grizzly bears uh, you know, it not just being like a made up part of, of a fear that you really shouldn't have kind of like sharks in the ocean a lot of times or something. It's it's like, well, there, there were actually quite a few. Tell us about that. How was the camping finding situation, uh, getting camp every night? And two, did you have a lot of bear encounters or were there other animals that were more of a nuisance or more more abundant? I I have heard similar things on the campsite front, which is why we were sure that Part of our day-to-day -day plan would to be around 3.30, 4 o'clock is when we start to look for a campsite. So we might have a rough stretch of um, a section that we think looks doable. We look at the charts and see that um, there might be water there, there's a beach there or whatever it may be that suggests that there could be camping. And uh, we are actually okay. Yeah, we didn't really have too much of an issue. Um, sometimes we'd get to a place that we thought we could camp on, we'd get out, have a look around. It's no good. We get back in the boats and we keep going. So I don't know if we just got lucky. Um, probably that. Probably we just got lucky and found the right spots. Because um, in Alaska, there was no 
we didn't have a guidebook in BC. We did, so we were using that to find spots. So that might be one thing. Maybe uh, a few years ago, there were maybe less resources in order to find camping. But now, in BC, you have the BC Marine Trails Network, where they've actually made a lot of public resources available to show you different places you can camp. So that made the whole thing a lot easier in that section. And then in Alaska, it was just uh, yeah, it wasn't too much of an issue. We were just lucky to find places as we went. I was in a hammock. Um, and Nuka was in a tent, so we had different criteria. Often there was only one tent spot, so that didn't matter because I needed trees and there's trees everywhere. So that wasn't too much of an issue. And then in terms of grizzly bears, it was also quite a weird thing because, in a sense, it is, the, in my opinion, the biggest danger out there, something you really don't want to run into, especially not at your campsite. But then it's also one of the main animals you really do want to see because you've gone all the way there to see the, you know, the the North American wildlife and the grizzly is the, the biggest, meanest one of them all. So you're kind of in a strange place. Um, but we actually only saw uh, two grizzly bears, um, which I was quite surprised at. I was expecting to see a lot more than that. We were also a little bit earlier in the season than some people go. So the salmon runs... Uh, weren't quite happening until towards the end of it, which might be a reason. Um, but the the two grizzlies we did see, it was under quite incredible circumstances where we, through a new friend that we made during our trip, we were put in touch with um, the chief of the Katasu Heihei Nation in Klemtu, which is in British Columbia. And uh, we were given his mobile number and... Uh, told to give him a ring when we get to uh to their land and we did and we he came down introduced himself you know welcomed us said you know feel free to to camp down here told us some places and uh, actually gave us a tour of the the big house which is the big ceremonial building for uh, uh a lot of the traditional songs dances potlatch that kind of stuff whilst he was giving us a tour it starts hammering with rain outside you can just hear it pounding on the on the building and this is a big wooden structure with traditional arts all uh, along the outside. And then inside has a big sand pit with a fire, a fire pit in the middle and then four totem poles on each corner. So uh, uh, an amazing building. And it's raining so much that he turns to us and asks if we have a campsite yet. And we say, no, not yet. I haven't set up camp. And he offers for us to stay in the big house, which was an amazingly generous offer. You know, at this point in the trip, just having a roof to stay under is uh, is incredible. But to actually stay in a building with such cultural significance, um, it was it was hugely appreciated to be able to do that. And we, of, of course, said yes. And Doug continued to give us some stories of the local history and the culture. And yeah, to be in that building and hear some of the stories from him was uh, was a real privilege for sure. Um, but then it, it, it just so happened that he used to be a grizzly bear guide before he was the elected chief. And he offered, if we want, he would take us to find some grizzly bears the following day. He knew where the, the bear tours go, where they take tourists. And uh, yeah, so I asked him, you know, what are our chances of seeing a grizzly bear? And he turned and said, 100%. <laughs> so we're, we're like, we're definitely going with you then. And uh yeah, he ended up taking us. Uh, we put our kayaks and, and a canoe for, for him and his friend Brady on the back of his boat. And he took us to an inlet nearby. 
anchored up and we got in our boats and uh yeah sure enough in this uh, incredible meadow there's a stream running down through the meadow with the mountains either side of it and there's a couple grizzlies just in there and yeah it takes us right up to them and we're asking him all these questions and it actually put me at ease a lot more seeing a grizzly bear in that circumstance with someone who knows so much about them he was able to tell me you know some of the the things i kind of assumed but hadn't confirmed you know in terms of bear safety what we should be doing at our campsite and uh essentially said that as long as we don't give them a reason to come anywhere near us that they won't come near us so, you know they're not they're not looking for for trouble kind of thing so as long as you don't come into one that has cubs uh yeah it shouldn't be an issue so certainly put us at ease but yeah they're actually the only ones we saw during the trip wow what what would you say you, you mentioned a few there but what would you say were some of the misconceptions about uh maybe the animals or what you thought was going to be an issue but ended up not being an issue or things that were the opposite you didn't think would be a problem but were i was sure that there would be at least one night where a a bear would come into our campsite i thought it was almost unavoidable like we could do whatever we as much as we tried to keep food out of the campsite or to not get food on our own gear and to keep the smells away from camp you know by having a kitchen further away from where you're camping and having all the food stashed away properly i was sure that no matter what we tried there would still be a bear coming into our camp at some point particularly being in a hammock you just feel a bit more exposed that you're kind of just going to be swinging there um so i, I always had my best ray within reach but it, it just didn't happen we were again maybe just lucky i've heard uh some quite scary and uh yeah unpredictable stories of when it does happen because you know what do you do um if a bear is in the campsite you know do you try and scare it off do you play dead or just hope it leaves you alone kind of thing and particularly at night time your options are quite limited so that was a concern. It was something that was on my mind, but yeah, it just it just didn't happen. Um, we didn't have any run-ins like that. But one thing that did become a bit of an issue, especially in Alaska, there were some crossings. It sounds like such a a great problem to have, but there were some crossings where there were so many humpback whales. It was actually quite dangerous, <laughs> knowing that they are around, and you really can't predict where they're going to surface. You know, there was one bit in a place called Frederick Sound where we had our biggest single day of humpback whale sightings, which I think was about 19 in one day. And that was like actually confirmed individuals. There was maybe more. Um, but yeah, there's a moment where just watching so many and some of them are making these incredible vocalizations, these strange kind of eerie, spacey kind of alien noises. There was some bubble net feeding and slapping their fins on the water and there's some in the distance breaching jumping out and we're watching them for a while and you know it's just amazing it's what we want to see but then the time comes like okay we now have a seven kilometer crossing and we need to go that way and there's so many humpbacks everywhere it it, it makes you quite nervous because you know they do surface closer than you want them to and they are massive and they don't necessarily look before they come up Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. I was going to ask if they if they at all are aware, not that they need to be, but if there was just that natural awareness. If not, 
it's just kind of a a, a a gamble. They are intelligent. They are smart, and they do have ways of you know sensing what's around them. Obviously, that's how they can find their food. But in in my opinion, they've just evolved for such a long time, and the time that humans are on the water has just not been that long in comparison. So they've not necessarily evolved to have to look before they leap or to check before they surface. It's, you know, they've been the biggest thing in the ocean for so long. It's, it's not a concern. And a sea kayak is such a puny thing that is just a non-issue to them. So I'll ask, what about bigger boats? Have you, do you know anything about that? Cause I, I, that's a great point. Same with a lot of animals that uh, you know, squirrels and deer, it's almost like their brain, you know, they have not evolved to deal with things coming at them 70 miles an hour, you know, so their, their decision making doesn't reflect modern life, evolutionarily speaking. And I'm curious if you know anything about the whales too, with larger boats. Yeah, humpback whales, well, all whales, I suppose, they do have collisions with boats fairly often. There's a, a lot of them have markings on their back where you can see a propeller has, has probably made it. Uh, some of them do get killed by getting hit by the bigger boats like cruise ships and stuff. And the smaller ones, sorry, the smaller boats often might hit the back of them as they surface for air because you just can't see them, especially in a slightly rough water. So with more people out on the fishing boats and the whale numbers hopefully well they are increasing well numbers are increasing in that area it's it's just going to happen there's more collisions so there are a lot of campaigns actually trying to in, increase awareness of that let people know this is a high density area for whales and you need to slow down because it's like being in a car crash you know it will obviously hurt the whale a lot but it will also hurt the humans behind the behind the wheel driving because uh, your boat stops pretty rapidly and uh, yeah some people have got in serious trouble from that happening there's also the issue that humpback whale calls can travel for hundreds of miles even into thousands of miles their communication network so with shipping lanes becoming more and more busy the noise that the cruise ships and the tankers and other things let off it actually disrupts the big network of whale calls and whale sounds so i think it's a fairly recent issue we're kind of realizing and trying to see if there's a way to figure that out is uh you know and there isn't really a way to know for sure the effects it's having but but yeah it, it's just another way that the whales are kind of affected by human uh, shipping traffic i know you've mentioned a couple amazing camping spots tell me about one of the one of the most memorable places you you slept for the night was it that with that chief or where those whales were bubble net feeding was it something else just it was like because for me, I don't know, something about finding that perfect spot when you do. Not every campsite's great, but when you do find it and you look around and you're like, I can't believe I'm here right now. Yeah, both of those would certainly be up there in the in the top five. You know, the, the big house was such a, a special moment due to the significance of what was happening and the huge honor to be allowed to stay there. To see the, the humpbacks in the morning as well, just a totally wild encounter. Um, but something that really stands out as well, we'd always be looking for, this is something that I really love about having a small little island to yourself. So when you can find one of those and there's just like a small beach, sandy beach, just enough for you to pull up on, you can walk around the whole island in like two minutes and just kind of knowing it's it's there and it's yours. There are certainly a few of them. 
you know, there's like one flat spot for a tent, two perfect trees for a hammock, like nothing else. There are a few of those, and that's what we'd kind of look for as number one. And it's kind of funny because it's actually you're kind of hindering yourself because there's no water on there, there's no stream to fill up on. You're kind of creating yourself another thing to do the next day. But there's just something that appeals about having your own little private island. Um, I can't think of the name of any in particular, but there, there was a few like a times with <laughs> yeah, there was quite a few of them, and uh, yeah, looking out for them was always nice. There's also something I hadn't thought of before we started. There's a uh, a small number of cabins out there as well. Some of them are actually made for public use, and you. Some of them we stumbled upon. Others we met other boat users out there. Some you know people sailors who would tell us and would plug in on our on our chart where some cabins were that they knew about. So finding a cabin, particularly on a long, rainy, wet day, when you come across a cabin, especially when it's by surprise, is just incredible because you've got a warm place to sleep. They often have a fireplace in there. People chop wood and leave it for the next person. And it just means you it's a few less things for you to have to get out of your own boat and set up your own hammock and your own tarp. And a chance to dry out is just so incredible. So, yeah, coming across some of the cabins was great. Did you have to decide whether they were accessible or not? Or was it kind of is it kind of the mindset out there that if it's there and you need it, you know, just just leave it better than you, you make sure you clean up after yourself? Yeah, that kind of thing. I think um, most of them are put there for that reason. There'd often be a sign inside and it will say, you know, this cabin was built by these people and blah, blah, blah. And there'd be like a guest book in there that you can sign you can read back and read about all the other people's adventures so it was often that you do sometimes come across a cabin with a big private sign and it might be like a private fishing lodge or something so obviously you'd leave those and just camp outside of it or something yeah um but generally yeah they were there for people doing what we were doing i think um or local people that knew about them and would go and spend a weekend there um yeah i think as long as you uh you know keep it tidy and keep it cleaner than than you arrived or leave it cleaner than you arrived then uh, it seemed like they were fair game what about speaking of that what about other people you know you mentioned seeing those those cruise ships playing like disney movies i don't know about you but sometimes i would be like cold and hungry or thirsty or, or something just just very uncomfortable after a long day and i'd see vehicles drive by maybe at a, on a bike trip or something and and i'd see the people in there just like eating this giant burger or something, I'd be so jealous and like so, so envious, almost mad at them. Um, I, I imagine you kind of had some of those same feelings. Maybe not, maybe not with those uh, big cruise ships, but d- did you run into any, any other kayakers, any other people doing what you were doing, any other people on big adventures or people in small communities along this route? There would often be sailboats anchored opposite some of our campsites if we found some really sheltered ones then the sailboats would go and anchor there and we would kind of daydream about what they might have on there like whether they especially if we ran out of wine we'd kind of quite loudly talk about how much we wish we had some more wine and uh, it would sometimes end up in a shout um, so we kind of daydream about what they might have and hope they might come and save us and uh, it would happen sometimes uh, we would you know if we got to a a uh, a dock or a harbor and there's one time in particular we um we got to a place called Butte Dale which has a 
a dock just enough for I think four sailboats before they go to the Grenville Channel. And we pulled up there and we were completely soaking wet. It had been raining all day and had been for a few days prior. And uh, yeah, someone came off the sailboat, gave us a shout, just said, when you guys are ready, if you want to dry out, just come on in. We've got the fire on. We've got some drinks in here. You know, feel free, come on in and like just come in in your dry suits and, and dry out. So there were, there were some incredible moments with people just wanting to hear our story and try and help us in any way in any way they could and then same when we came across the small communities they were few and far between but every week or so there'd be a small town and we'd we'd pull up and we'd you know wander around and um yeah people were just always happy to help people wanted to hear our story um i guess they were impressed by what we were doing and felt that we were a little crazy and and that we needed as much help as as we could get and uh yeah we had some meals given to us and drinks bought for us uh which is just really cool yeah some really nice gestures of people and i think that part of the world is just full of adventurous types people that want to get out and love nature and everyone's kind of on their own little adventure and they're happy to help each other along on theirs yeah i, I imagine if you're out there you're, you're you're a little more rugged in the first place and you're going to meet a lot more kindred spirits and if you were compared to if you were doing this in some major uh metropolitan area or or, or kayaking through there so that's awesome um what would you say was maybe the most unexpected thing about the experience was either from like what you imagined it would look like what you imagined you'd encounter how it felt uh, how your body reacted anything like that i think before going into it because i've never done something like this before i've done guided trips with groups up to six days but never something more than that. So, like a like an actual trip, not bigger than, lot longer than that for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I'd, I'd only done six days before. This is like twelve times longer than the longest thing you've ever done. Yeah, this was seventy two days total. So a, a big thing for me really is just not really knowing what to expect. Like there's only you do as much preparation as you think you need to do. Um, my style, I guess, is quite laid back and I kind of rely on my own abilities to problem solve as I go quite often. And, uh, you know, before I going into it, I was for a couple of days before, I was wondering, like, have I really underestimated this? <laughs> do I, should I know more than I do? So you were doubting yourself a little bit. Yeah, there was, you know, there were moments like, you know, am I going to, especially with some of the, the navigation, there's some areas where you have to get to a certain place at a certain time due to the tides because there's rapids and whirlpools and quite dangerous conditions if you go at the wrong time so i was sure i could do this it's stuff i've learned in training courses it was what i'm qualified to do but it had never really been tested in such a a way it had been tested under you know a controlled environment with other other guides some more qualified than me so i'd never really put those skills to the test in the way that we were doing so i guess that was a big thing for me just you know can we actually do this and uh you know fortunately one of those tests is on the second day a place called surge narrows the islands are so close together that when the water goes through at the fastest flow it creates standing waves rapids and whirlpools so that was an opportunity straight off the bat to know if we're doing this right um do we know what we're doing and 
yeah, fortunately we got there. It was completely flat. It was slack water. That was exactly when we wanted to arrive there. And yeah, it was very underwhelming, which is what you want. It's just completely flat and calm and you just cruise straight through. And then I knew, yeah, this is going to be okay. We know how to do this. Gosh, was, was there any other story you really wanted to share some day that, that really stuck out to you or just some reflection about the trip? Because I know it wasn't that long ago. You, you recently finished. Uh, so you're probably still processing it. You're going to process it for a while. It's a really long trip, 72 days. That's, that's an adventure. That probably felt like a year. And so I'm sure it's taken a while to get through like, what is different about me now on the other side of this? Yeah, it's quite a funny thing. So I came straight off the the back of that trip. And then I was immediately planning the Kilimanjaro expeditions that were happening just a month later. So the time to actually sit down and process it, like you say, hasn't really happened. I was kind of straight on to the next one. But now that that's done, I'm, I'm back into for fun sake mode and editing photos and videos and speaking to people such as yourself. So I'm kind of reliving it again, which is which is awesome. Um. I'd say one moment that really does stand out as one of my favorites of the entire trip and definitely something that needs to be shared was on our, I think it was into our second week. We were still on Vancouver Island. We had actually just left a place called Telegraph Cove and we're leaving a bay and uh, going, so when we go across the bay, we just go from one point directly across the other side, save some time, no point going in it. And as we're aiming for this point, in the corner of my eye, I see some dorsal fins pop up. And after working on the island for a few years, I know straight away that they're killer whales. So I say to Nuka, there's some there's some killer whales coming. They're quite far off and they kind of dove down. So we had some time to, to prepare. And it's a really, really calm day, completely flat, perfect conditions. So we get our cameras out, get ready. Uh, I'm there to take some photos. Nuka's on the video. And the killer whales are going towards the same point we are. So we know they're going to be coming closer to us. So we can just sit and wait. And sure enough, they surface again and they're really quite active on the surface. There's at least seven or eight of them and one calf as well, a really small one. And it's just a, an amazing encounter because we're quite early into the trip. We were unsure how long it would actually be until we saw any killer whales. And again, you know, we're just in awe of what's happening. They're so close and it's such a calm day that we can just hear every breath that they take um every time they come out of the water it's just just wild but then something really wild that happens is in the corner of my eye i see nuka wobble and this was strange because it was such a calm day there's no waves there's no wind he shouldn't be wobbling but then he says there's one under my boat there's an orca under my boat and i turn to the side and see it surface about two meters in front of him, just comes right up and then rejoins the rest of the group. And what had happened, looking back in the video, this orca came all the way behind us, and then it went onto its side, so its dorsal fin didn't come out of the water, so it's fully like stealth mode. It came behind us, and then as it went under Nuka's boat, it just gave him a little tap, just enough to kind of wobble him, but not enough to throw him in. Like if it wanted him in the water, it could have very easily done that. But it was just a just a little tap. We don't know why. You know, we can only guess. Maybe it was just letting us know it was there. Maybe because there was a calf, it was being defensive, or maybe it was just being playful, or just finding out what we were. We have no idea. But in his video, you can see the white flash of the killer whale as it goes underneath his boat on its side. Then it rolls over to its right way up, and then surfaces right in front and. You know, our hearts are 
pounding at that point. We just can't believe what we've just seen. And, you know, so early in the trip too to 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 be scared like that. You know, <laughs> probably had some some second thoughts right there. Uh, he's like, man, I got a family I got to get back to. <laughs> I don't know. Wild. It's funny. It wasn't really a feeling of being scared. We definitely, the the power of the killer whales is intimidating in a way that you know they are so big and powerful and you are in their home. But there was never a sense of fear because I just, just know, I guess just from my own studies, that they don't, that's not a behavior they would do. They're not aggressive towards humans in the wild. So it felt almost like a was honored that it came and gave us a little tap and then went on its way. It was a, a fist bump. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. So it was a strange thing, yeah, because it was a a scary encounter, but it felt very intentional and yeah, it, it was just this. I don't know, saying hello, saying announcing its presence. I'm not sure. Wild, absolutely wild. Well, um, this is definitely kind of confirmed that this is something i want to do one day i've always wanted to but just hearing it again hearing these stories is just unbelievable the the adventure and how pristine this wilderness is and how sheerly beautiful it is how can folks yeah i, I know you said you tried to film it tried to capture it uh, a lot of it I, I know you probably haven't had time to process all that as well but but tell us about you know how can folks check this out or, or be able to watch something that you'll release at some point or, or just get more involved with what you're doing so we are creating a youtube series of this adventure the first episode is already on youtube it's the preparation episode so it's basically everything up until the day before we begin so i uh i finished editing it like on that day like whilst we're there and uploaded it and then and then we went so it really is like right up until the moment we leave so on youtube it's for fun sake expedition or at ffs expedition um on youtube um and then we're pretty active on instagram and facebook as well but yeah just searching for fun sake expedition or ffs expedition um you'll be able to find everything we're doing the rest of the series will be available during this winter that's my next task is to edit all of that so i think into the new year we'll hopefully start getting the episodes up and there should be eight of them coming well sweet well let us know and we'll be happy to plug them happy to share them and i will absolutely be watching them yeah we have a newsletter that goes out we'll plug it there and uh yeah would love to share uh, we we realized that an audio format is great because people you know, there's people listening on an adventure right now. You know, I don't know if you listen to any podcasts while you're out there or anything, but we can hear from so many folks. It's like you know, this just gives me inspiration to to get out there and do this. But there's also plenty of people who would love to you know have the ability to sit down and watch these experiences too, if those mediums exist. So uh, whatever you got, we'd love to share. Yeah, excellent. Thanks so much. And yeah, I'm happy to help people as well who are thinking of an adventure such as this you know i know it can be hard to find information so yeah for sure if you're sitting there thinking you want to do something like this you know reach out and i'm happy to kind of share some resources and give some encouragement to those that want to get out and do it until next time which i'm, I'm sure we'll have you back on at some point uh every two years just check in what you're doing we'll, we'll tell the story <laughs> um but yeah thanks so much for joining us today on the adventure sports podcast and uh yeah, keep getting out there and doing this and taking people. That's what it's all about. We want to get more people to be introduced to adventures through someone experienced like you, and maybe they'll start to have the aspirations. Maybe it's never the inside passage. Maybe it's 
to do Kilimanjaro and then just to stay active and to stay outdoors and to stay uh, involved in adventure somehow. Micro adventures all the way up to macro. So um, thanks for what you're doing. Excellent. Yeah, thanks so much, Mason. It's been a pleasure reliving this adventure with you. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to the show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.